we looked at Jesus as redeemer. Then week two, last week, we looked at the wise men, and the wise men saw Christ as king, and he is the ruler. So we have redeemer, and then we have ruler. And so when a person like yourself or myself receives Jesus into their life as redeemer and as the ruler of our life, if we push back on that, and some of you might be pushing back on that, you're not a Christian, you've come here because you've been dragged in here. Maybe some believers through the years have been leaving little you know, Bible verses or tracks around work, and you're like, man, no way. Well, you're here, and you're here for a reason, because God's drawing you to himself. But if there's people that push back on Jesus being redeemer and ruler of their life, do you know what he becomes? He becomes your rival. This is the turning point. This is where some of you and some of the people that you might know, family members, they've also now become rival of Christ. And this is Herod. Herod is a rival of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a definition of rival. You'll see it on the screen behind me. Here's a little definition. A person competing against another for the same objectives. That's a rival. Let me just have a little bit of fun with you, especially if you're a sports fanatic uh, like, like I am. And so we want to look at some of the greatest rivals in sports history. Now, I want you to try to guess these. Don't pull up any screens yet. Uh, Here's the first one. I want to go into basketball. What do you think the greatest rival in basketball teams? Who do you think they were? That would be, yes. How about teams? The teams? Yeah, you're right, Andy. Take a look at this. This is one of the greatest rivals. Of course, that's Larry Bird and who? Magic Johnson, great rival. That, those two teams, I could never make it into uh, the Boston Garden. I lived up in the Boston area for a lot of years. But if you wanted tickets to go see the Celtics, uh, you're going to wait for a long time. In fact, Jesus would probably have come back by the time I got tickets to make it into the, into the Boston Garden. How about baseball? Does anybody have any idea of baseball rivals, who that would be? Wow, you're good, Andy. You got that again, huh? He ought to win a prize for that. Now, look at the rival there. I mean, it's so intense uh, that these people are just kind of, you know, having a moment there. And so, and I'm, I'm, I'm not showing these to suggest that I believe in fighting, <laughs> okay? You know, you're going to say, well, Pastor Chris, he showed a picture on them. They're beating each other up. My little kid in Little League can beat you, beat up the other person. It's just fine. No, I'm not endorsing that, all right? All right, let's go over to, uh, how about football? Come on, we know who, who the football, except for Andy. Don't say anything, Andy. If anybody said Packers, Packers is one of them. Can we bring that up? Who's the other one? That's one of the greatest rivals in football history right there. All right, how about boxing? This is going to be a little bit harder for all of us, right? Boxing, anybody have any idea? (laughs) This isn't even fun anymore, man. You're just, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so that's Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali is the greatest boxing rival that ever was. Now we're going to have to go to golf because, I mean, golf's not a sport to me, you know, but it's a sport to some. You know, I know some of you are golfers, and you're going to be, like, giving me an email, like, what are you talking about? But I had to put this on there because it's interesting. Uh, so anybody know who these folks are? Yeah, it's Jack Nicholas and Ulmer Palmer. So there's, there's a rival right there. You guys did pretty well on that. Andy, you killed it, man. Well, that's all in fun, but I want to show you a rival. I want to show you a competition uh, with Christmas. We all, we all at times can compete with Christmas. You're saying, what do you mean by that? Well, I want to look at Herod's perspective on Christmas, and we'll see that he competed against, listen, God. He competed against God. You don't want to compete against God, right? Do you think you've ever competed against God? I know I have. I know about four others. We all compete against God. Herod is competing against the Son of God, and we're going to see his perspective for this day. He's a rival 
but you know what? We can be rivals of God too at various times in our life. I want to look at Herod's reaction uh, to the birth of Christ and show you a progression that happens. There's three points I want to give to you in your outline. There's a progression uh, that happens in all of our life when we become competitors against God, against God. So Holy Spirit, right now, I pray that you would help us to really grab this. Help us not to look at the person next to us and think, man, that person behind us and oh my, oh my spouse, yeah, he really, he really needs a touch from you because he's competing against you all the time. Help us to just look at ourselves and see if we're a competitor, a rival of yours. And I know, Lord, that I have done that way too many times in my life. I have competed against you. And I just want to say I'm sorry. Maybe you would want to say that even before we look at the verses. God, I'm sorry that I have been your rival. I have competed against you. The Holy Spirit moved mightily in the text of Scripture. You wrote it, and now we're going to look at it. In Jesus' mighty name, God's people say, amen. Let me give you number one. We're going to look at these verses, verses three to six. Number one is when we're competing against God, when we're feeling the tension of losing our control. Okay, watch this, because the enemy is going to say right to you now, you're going to, you're going to start to pull back because some of you have high control tendencies, right? I've asked you that question before, Harvest Redding. Do you, do you have a tendency to be high control? Anybody here want to make a public confession to that? That is not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Give me a break. Can I just say that one more time? Do you ever have a, con, you know, a tendency to be controlling? We all do. There's number one. We feel the tension of this. You'll see it in the life of Herod. Well, we, we learned a little bit about Herod. I mentioned some things I'm not going to get into this week. If you want to try to listen to that on website, you can do that. Herod's not a good guy. Herod is an evil man. He, he's a megalomaniac. He's referred to from Rome, who he worked for, as the king of the Jews. Now, think about that. He's given this title as king of the Jews. He really thinks he's king of the Jews. And, but you have another king coming, and you have these magi that are coming from the Eastern Empire. And we looked at that. They're from Babylon. And so these, these magi, these are high-ranking ruling officials from the Eastern Empire that are coming 800 miles to Jerusalem to see the real king. You think that's upsetting Herod a little bit? For sure it is. We're going to see that. And so here come the magi on their trip to see the king of kings. And I just loved what Kevin Rasky, what you were doing, brother, during that exhortation. You know, that these, these, these magi and these people came within that manger, that stable, that cave, and a little bit later it would be a house uh, that people would visit Jesus as he was a little bit older. Can you imagine that? What a scene. What a scene. Anyhow, let's look at the text. Matthew chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 6, or verse 3, rather. I'm sorry, verse 3. I'm in James. Hold on. Where am I doing in James here? I was reading James last night. Left my place there. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. Here we go. Verse 3 says, And when Herod the king heard this, he's hearing about the coming of Christ. He's hearing about the prophecies and all of, the, all of it pointing to the baby Jesus being born. And when Herod the king heard this, he was what? What does it say? He was troubled. Let me give you a modern-day interpretation of that Greek word. He was freaking out. Remember now, he thinks he's king, and now you have maybe 100 to 200 wise men. It's not three. 
That's a Christmas card from Hallmark. You got a lot of these powerful people coming to Jerusalem, and he's freaking out. This is a man that is, is very much established in his role as king of the Jews, 35 years. What's his deal? What's he really struggling with? Does anybody know what he's really struggling with? What is it? He's threatened. He's threatened. He's threatened by who? A baby? A baby? Think about this guy. I mean, this guy is powerful. This guy is ruthless. You remember, he had his own wife killed. Had some of his own children drowned. Had some of his own extended relatives murdered. This is a mean, mean, mean mean man. Powerful man. He wasn't threatened by any human being. He built magnificent structures. Let me show you one of them. Show it up on the screen if you would, John. This is Masada. That's a, that's a retreat. That is an actual retreat. It's not like the Hilton or Sheridan, <laughs> tell you that. But that was a retreat that he built called Masada. It's on top of a mountain. And if there were invasions, then, then he and his people would go up to Masada for, for refuge, for an advantage. This is a powerful man. And he built many, many things around Israel and Palestine. But then a baby comes, and he's intimidated by a baby. I don't know about you, but you don't see too many babies intimidating anybody. I, I've, I've never been intimidated by a baby. I mean, I go to baby, you know, when babies are born, I've been a pastor a long time. I go into the maternity ward. When I go in there, you know, I don't walk in. Well, let me just rephrase that. I'm sorry. I do get intimidated when they're too tiny. I have a hard time holding them, and so I wait till they're older because I'm afraid I'm going to drop them. So I am intimidated for that factor. But I'm not intimidated in the sense that, you know, they're going to mug me, they're going to, you know, reject me, they're going to just say all kinds of evil against me or anything like that. I'm not afraid they're going to tackle me down, put me in a headlock. You know, I'm just not intimidated by a baby that way. But you have Herod being intimidated by a baby, right? He was troubled. Has any baby ever troubled you? And I'm not talking about keeping you up at night, ladies, or, you know, the feeding through them. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the troubling that is a torment inside of your soul. And that's Herod. He's tormented. He's threatened by a baby. He's intimidated. Who said threatened? Was that you, Dan? Somebody said threatened earlier. This is, this is Herod towards a baby. I'm going to go to verse 3. Notice verse 3 because there's more to it. Not just Herod is troubled, but it says right there after that, and all Jerusalem with him. Are you there with me in the text? Do you see it with your own eyes? And all Jerusalem with him. Not only Herod, but all the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem were also troubled by the coming of the baby Jesus. Why is that the case? Because the religious leaders and the political leaders are completely corrupt. And when you have a righteous baby, the anointing of God on a baby coming near corruption and unrighteousness, you're going to have people being troubled threatened. Think about that in your own life, because if you walk in righteousness and holiness, and you have people that are pushing back on you, it's because there's some form of threat there. This is what's happening with Herod, not just his position. He's thinking, wow, there's something about this baby. There's an anointing on this baby. I don't have that anointing, and he's troubled, and he is a rival of God. This is where he's going. But specifically, can I just say this? There's a loss of control for Herod and the religious and political leaders of Jerusalem. There's a loss of control. Notice the rest of the verses here as we go on. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Who did Jesus have the most problems with? 
Did he have problems with prostitutes and people with leprosy? Did he have, who did he have problems with? He had problems with the religious leaders, the political leaders. That's the, why? Because he had an anointing on him, because he was a righteous man. Look at verse five. And they told him the Beth, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's a loss of control. It's a loss of control. Can I go back to sports with you? Think about this. Anytime you're watching football, what is the main objective of one team is to have the, the longest control of the Bible, of the Bible, of the ball. <laughs> Unless you're the Eagles, then it's the Bible, right? No, it's like, it's like you got to hold on to that ball the longest. That's what it's all about. It's about control. That's who wins. The ones who hold on to the ball and score the most are the ones who win. It's the same thing in basketball. Watch what happens when one team is losing and the other team has momentum against them. What are they going to do? What's the coach going to do? The first thing he's going to do is what? He's going to blow the whistle. Why, why is he going to do that? He wants to stop the momentum and he wants to try to regain control. This happens everywhere in life. It's all about control. It's all about this in relationships. <laughs> My wife and I are so competitive. When you, when, you, when you put us in front of a Monopoly game and start to play Monopoly against each other, I'm telling you, it wouldn't be too long after that we're looking for the divorce line and standing in line waiting. To, it's just, it's awful. It is awful. We're just against each other. And we fight against each other. I was only kidding about the divorce thing. That was not, not true. Some of you are like, oh, no. But we are intense. Competitiveness is in relationship, too. Competitiveness, this control, I want control of the bank. That's how you win at Monopoly. Did you know that? If you can get control of those $500 bills, don't you love the orange $500 bills? It's awesome. If you can control that more than the next guy or girl, you're going to win. Competitiveness is everywhere. But let me change this word control. I want to change that. I want to get rid of the word control and put sovereign. Sovereign means reigning and ruling over all or in control. And so when we compete against God is what we're saying is we want to reign. I want to reign. When you try to control, listen, you got to hear this. This is so practical. It's the sovereignty of God. It's God being exalted. It's God being in control of your life. And when you are going through some things and you try to hold on to your life and try to control it, even try to manipulate it, that's what Herod tries to do, you'll see that in a moment, then what you're saying is you want to be God. And you're competing against God. This control thing is not for jokes, it's not for kicks and giggles. This control thing that we struggle with is a big deal. Because you're exalting yourself higher than God like Herod was doing. You're saying Herod was a horrible person. He had issues. No, we have issues. We do. Why would you look down at somebody else and say, well, they have problems. Every hand should have went up because we all have control issues. I do. That's why I made that confession during prayer with all sincerity because I have fallen into this and I have tried to rule and reign over God's sovereignty. But instead of submitting myself, going below God and saying, God, you're in control. You know what you're doing. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fear. This is practical. This isn't just a Christmas story about Herod. We all have tendencies to do this. And when, 
when life comes unraveled, and listen, has anybody's life ever been unraveled? Raise your hand. Anybody's life ever been unraveled? Is anybody's life becoming unraveled now in any way? Raise your hand, because we're going to have some prayer. And so when your life becomes like that, then there's this tension of control, and you try to hold on, right? You might look like this. You might have seen this picture on Facebook. Take a peek. What do we got? There he is. Have you seen that little guy? This is, this is you. Some of you are like, that's not me, no way. Man, I'd be just like hands up in the air. Some of you are good like that on a roller coaster. I'm just illustrating something. Don't take it too serious. I don't know about you, but I honestly have been like this little boy. And I'm just trying to hold on. It's a tension of control. And whenever you try to be a rival to God like Herod's doing, then you go against God. And you're trying to one-up him. You're competing against him. I want you to take your Bible, go to James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Just quickly, James chapter 1. I should have just stayed there, huh? I was already in James. James chapter 1, I want to look at verses 2 down to verse 4. Then we'll go into verse, or number 2 in the outline. James chapter 2, because this is a, a section of Scripture that is so relevant to all of us, especially if at the Christmas season you're going through some trials and tribulations. Are you in James chapter 1 yet? Anybody? Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials or trials of various kinds. Count it all the joy. That's hard enough, right? For you know that the testing of your faith is doing what? What's it doing? What's that word? If you're in the ESV version, which I'm using, it's producing steadfastness. So what you're going through, as hard as it is, it's producing something in you. You're going to be more steadfast. My wife and I face things now that before might have taken us out. They don't take us out now. Because what we went through was preparing us, training us in, in how to handle trauma, trials, and tribulations. So if you're going through something now like you've never gone through before, know it's producing something good in you. It's producing steadfastness. Verse 4, and what? What's this next word? Watch this. And what? And let. Are you in, are you in the same book as I am? James 1, right? Okay. What's it say? And Let. There's your control, because when you're like the little kid. Can we go back to the little guy again? Where's he at? He's already off the roller coaster, right? There he is. And so it's hard as, there's no way this kid's letting go of that bar. And, and I'm going to say to you, there are some things you need to let go of. And you're going to be like, there is no way I'm letting go of that. But the Bible says right here in these verses, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Beautiful. Some of you just need to let it go. Let go of your control. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so insecure? Jesus can heal you of that. Why are you so threatened? Like Herod. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. He's calling us to fully surrender this morning. Herod didn't do that. We're going to see what happens to him in a little bit. Here's number two in our outline. How do we know that we're competing against God? 
We know when we're facing the tragedy of loosening our conscience. Are you back in Matthew chapter 2? Notice, I mean, Don did such a phenomenal job during our Civil War series on the conscience. But we see a conscience that's loosening here. If you look at verse 7, this is after that he got word of what's going on. Herod, verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men. What's the next word there? Secretly. Anytime you see that happen in the text of Scripture, you know it's probably not going to be good. Anytime something has to be secret, probably not a good thing, right? Would you agree with that? We're hiding something. We're concealing something. God wants things to be out in the open, but if we're, we're hiding things, typically what happens in the dark is not good. And so Herod is trying to secretly do something here. He's trying to manipulate. And so verse 7, he uses the word secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and do what? Is that true? Is he going to do that or is that false? Is he really going to worship Jesus? This is a controlling person that has now stepped into compromise. And this is what happens to all of us. Once I'm a controller and I'm trying to control my life, then I'm going to be doing things that's going to start compromising my conscience. And so he moves into deceit. He moves into tricking others. Man, don't just look at Herod this morning. Please listen to this because we fall into this all the time. Herod's conscience is loosening. He's got this lie thing going and deception going, and he's trying to find out more about Jesus where he's being born so that the wise men will go bring Jesus, the baby, to him so that he can worship him, no, so that he can destroy the competition. This is what he's after. You know that you are loosening your conscience when you fall into manipulation. Manipulation. And listen, our consciences aren't instantly loosened. It begins with turning away from God, really competing against him. Then we start down this downward spiral. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. I don't think I have that on the screen, right, John? Go to Romans 9 just quickly. Romans 9, I want to show you this, just one verse. Ninth chapter of Romans. Paul's the right author of Romans. It's a tremendous letter. I am speaking the truth in verse 1 in Christ. I speak the truth. If anybody walked in integrity, if anybody knew how it was to surrender fully to Jesus, of course, Paul did that on the road to Damascus when he had that vision encounter with Christ and he fell to the ground. Paul was a man who understood that God is sovereign, that he is over all, ruling over all. I don't think too many times after all of this, Paul would have competed with God. He said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and I am not lying. Watch this. My conscience bears me witness, where? In the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Even right now, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? You're saying, I don't hear anything. I don't ever hear God at all. Do you know what might have happened to your conscience? You're searing it. 
There's so much compromise going on in the evangelical church. Compromise in behavior and things we're doing and things we're looking at, places we're going. There's so much compromise that our conscience is loosening. And we try to hear the Holy Spirit. And Paul could hear the Holy Spirit because his conscience was clear. It says, before God and man. This is a progression that we all go down if we're not careful. Back in Matthew chapter 2, we don't want to compromise. We don't want our consciences to be loose. Let me quickly go through number three with you. Here's how we're knowing we're competing against God. We're fulfilling the trauma of living our choices. We're fulfilling the trauma of living our choices. Back in 2 of Matthew, look at verses 16 down to verse 18. It just gets worse for Herod. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, of course, the wise men we looked at saw a vision. They heard the voice of God. They listened and they left, went back to their homeland, didn't go back to Herod. And so Herod is upset, to say the least. He's furious, it says in the text. I'm in verse 16. And he sent, and he did what? He killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or young. Look what happened. I mean, now he's deciding these things. He's going down into this depravity even further. Again, it starts with a control, and then it moves into your conscience, and now he's going to be living with choices that he's making. They're horrific. It's just horrible choices. This is a man who went to his grave. This is a man who died of a disease that they don't really know what he died of specifically, but his internal organs were being destroyed. He was dying from the inside out, and he died a horrible death, Herod did. Couldn't imagine being this man. What was going through his head? What's he thinking? Wife killed, kids killed, relatives killed, under two years old killed. He lives his life to the end of his life with all of this trauma and choice making, and now he has to live with that? Can you imagine Herod getting on the other side in eternity? And he's standing before a holy God. And God the Father says to Herod face to face, why were you trying to kill my son? Can you imagine hearing the father say that to you? Would you want the father to say that to you? I want to hear Jesus and the father say, well done, good and faithful servant. But Herod didn't hear that. Herod's standing before the father and, and, and they're having this exchange. I would not want to be that guy. This is a man living with choices that he had made, horrible choices, and he's carrying that to his grave, and he dies this horrible death, and he spends eternity in hell. That's where Herod's at. Separated from God, a holy God, a righteous, loving God for all eternity. That's Herod's future. It's kind of sad because Herod started as a competitor could have fallen before God and said, God, I just want to live for your glory. I want to live for you. This baby that is being born, I will gladly lay aside my kingship for this baby. Could have done all that perhaps and didn't. So important for us to understand this tragic ending to Herod. There are consequences to our decisions. There are consequences to our choices. Any choice that you make, listen, any choice that you and I make doesn't only affect us, it affects who? your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers. It affects your church. If you make a decision, if I make a decision that is 
not wise, it's not holy, it's not godly, it's going to affect you guys. The warners will be affected if I move down this progression and I, I just stay in control of my own life. I don't give it over to the Lord as, as the ruler of my life and my conscience starts to loosen up and I'm starting to compromise and then I'm moving into some choices that are not really biblical and not pleasing to the Lord. It doesn't just affect me, it affects the Ewings, it affects you. Everybody will be affected. And some of you know the truth of that because you might have come out of churches that had all kinds of things going sideways. You know what's interesting? If you trace some of that back, you'll trace it back to a controlling person. Isn't that true? Try to, just go back to that progression. Keep going back up, and you'll see that it's, it's probably some kind of a controlling issue. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. I want to finish with this. If you would take yourself over to Proverbs, I'm going to close. Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon is the writer by the inspiration of the Spirit of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 29, look it down to verse 31. The Bible says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, right? So here's this pushing back on, on the knowledge, the wisdom of God, the revelation of the Lord, and they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel. They, would, they despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they, they shall eat the fruit of their way. Isn't that what Herod did? And they will have their fill of their own devices. Our own devices, I mean, my decisions, the life that I live, the life that you live. You're not going to have what the Lord is speaking to you, and the Lord is speaking to some people here. And you're, he's saying to you, I want you just to bow before me. I want you to follow me. I don't want you to be in control of your life anymore. I want you to give up control. I want all of your heart. I don't want 20%. I don't want even 99% of your heart. I want all of your heart. Is he saying that to anybody in the house today? You know the Holy Spirit is moving upon you. And he's wanting you to make a decision to stop competing against God. Come before him. 